Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I'm joined by James Harding-Morris, who works at the RSPB, but is also part of Back from the Brink, a group of different nature NGOs working to restore species that without our help will probably go extinct in Britain, which is a great initiative. I think one of the fantastic things as well is that we can be surprised by species. And me and James do talk about species that have recolonised naturally, some with our help. But recently in the news, there was a great fox spider rediscovered on MOD land in Surrey. And these are quite large uh, predatory spiders. All, all spiders are predatory, but it's one that comes out at night. So we didn't know that it was still around. It hadn't been seen since the early 1990s, and we rediscovered it. Or I say we, a chap called Mike Waite rediscovered it. So it just goes to show that there are still uh, species clinging on in certain areas, so you never know. But, as is often the case, without our help, they do go tits up, and that's where Back From The Brink are doing a fantastic job. So here's mine and James's chat about the work that they do. James, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. No worries. Now, you are from Back From The Brink, so I think we should start with the basics. Uh, who are Back From The Brink, or what is Back From The Brink? So Back From The Brink is a, uh, a groundbreaking collaboration of conservation organisations. So, you know, we, we know that conservation organisations work together, but I don't think there has been a partnership on quite this scale uh, quite this deeper collaboration and, and quite this um, kind of groundbreaking objectives. Uh, I'll reel off a list of, of who the key players are. So Natural England brought everyone together. And then it is Plant Life, the RSPB, Amphibian and Reptile Conservation, Bat Conservation Trust, Bug Life, Butterfly Conservation, and I can remember seven at one time, Bumblebee Conservation. And that is the kind of core of the Back from the Brink partnership. And then, of course, we're working with dozens of other organisations across the country as well. And our aim, what, we, what, what has unified us, is bringing back from the brink of extinction England's most threatened and endangered species. And it's all been made possible thanks to funding from the National Lottery. So I imagine that can be a little bit tricky because sometimes uh, NGOs don't always see eye to eye, even though you'd think they'd be best buddies. Uh, it's amazing how often in conservation, two groups you think would get on really well um, don't always have the same idea. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, a really good point. I think, fortunately, from a back-from-the-brink context, um, because we're, we're not talking about, I don't know, big policy or really contentious issues. It's very much focused down on that kind of um, needle sharp point of species conservation of the most endangered species. Actually, that's very easy to see eye to eye on. We know that these things need to be saved and we are moving, you know, heaven and earth to try and make it happen. Yeah, which is good, which is what it wants to be, isn't it? You don't want to get bogged down in potential politics with it all. So, what I was curious, because we had uh, Joe Gray, who was on the podcast, and he did some work for Back From The Brink. I can't, I, this is really bad, I should remember, but I, if you go back to the podcast, he'll talk all about the work that he did on it. But how do you pick the species or the habitats? Because there's obviously so many species that are in need of 
potential help. So how do you narrow it down? Because you, you're only doing a few, aren't you? You're not obviously doing everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, back from the brink, we are looking. So, so um, we are hoping to save 20 species from extinction. And we are, we are working on a further 90 plus species that are really not doing very well. And then beyond that, there's another hundred or so species that we think will benefit from the work we're doing. But as you say, that is just a drop in the ocean, really, of, of what could be saved. So um, really amassing that list was a mixture of identifying the species that were, were closest to the edge and also working out where we had the resource and specialisations to um, work on those species. So there is um, a, um, a list that was originally developed by Natural England's government list called the Section 41 list, and that is essentially uh, a document with all the most threatened species in the UK and a large proportion of the back from the brink species are section 41 species these most threatened and endangered species from that that's where it came to you know where are where are we based where are we aligned which species actually are there multiple species that share a single habitat? And that's where projects like shifting sands in the Brecklands, you know, there's a lot of species that are threatened in this one habitat. And so it was quite neat to kind of bundle them up together. But we also have a few species that aren't on that list. And the, the really obvious one is the checkered skipper. The checkered skipper was over the brink, you know, it was extinct in England. And so it's not on the section 41 list because it was gone. And so, um, that one was added to our list because the the butterfly conservation had already been working towards this possibility and back from the brink was a way of kind of bringing that to fruition. So it's a kind of mixture of identifying the species and working out where we could have the maximum impact for them. You can probably hear my dog going ballistic in the background. <laughs> someone has dared to knock on the front door and... Uh, despite being a sausage dog, she thinks she's a Rottweiler. So you've almost answered it there uh, a little bit, but I was going to say, has there been any, any success stories? But obviously the release of Checkered Skippers back to England is a huge success story. So how, how, how long have you been going? You've not been going too long. Is it 2016 you started? Is that right? Uh, it's tw beginning of 2017. Yeah. 2017, okay. Yeah. So yeah. since then, has, has anything changed? Has anything kind of got better? I mean, that's, that is a really interesting question. And I think that that kind of nails, really kind of hits a, a really salient point, which is at what point can you say that you have, have set something sustainable, uh, put something sustainable in place to make a long-term change for species? So we just mentioned Checkered Skipper, and I'll use that as an example. Before Back from the Brink began, the Butterfly Conservation was already working with landowners and partners to to work on habitat improvements. And in 2018, it was judged to be in a fit state to bring some checkered skippers back from Belgium, release them. Now, that wasn't the end of the story. That, in a way, that's the beginning of the story because there's monitoring, you know, are those butterflies breeding? And, and of course they did pop up in 2019 and 2020. Are enough of them breeding? Do we need to do top up? Uh, introductions if we you know if we just left it how long will the habitat stay you know have have landowners built appropriate habitat management into their ongoing plans for the ongoing two five ten twenty years so there's that so 
in a lot of senses, I, I see back from the brink as doing some really important interventions now that can help set things on a, on a positive trajectory. But in fact, an, a, a just as big a question is, what do we leave behind? What do we embed with local partners, local groups, local communities of people to ensure that these species don't slip back? So, and then of course your question was about successes. So I've touched on checkered skipper there. Do you know the rugged oil beetle? Are you familiar with the rugged oil beetle? Are they like the bloody nose beetles? Were they one of those? They're kind of similar, kind of big black plodding beetle. Yeah. Okay. And um, they have um, a really weird life cycle where the, the actual beetle itself comes out in winter. In fact, they're out now and they will continue to be out till April. They come out, so they come out in winter, which is weird. They actually grow in their adult form. Most beetles, you know, grow as a larvae and then their adult size is kind of set, but they emerge and then they swell up until they look almost like a black olive. That's kind of how big they get. They're a big chunky beetle. They only come out at night and their life cycle, they produce um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of larvae, which are minuscule, which climb up flowers hitch rides on solitary bees and then live in the burrows of solitary bees. Um, as you can imagine, we know that there has been a huge decline in bee populations over the last however many decades. And also habitat fragmentation might mean that even if a larvae gets somewhere and emerges, there are no other rugged oil beetles nearby. So it needs good uh, numbers of bees and it needs large areas of intact habitat. Now, our project in the Cotswolds, which is called Limestone's Living Legacies, because it's about limestone grassland. When our project started, we knew of seven populations of this beetle in the Cotswolds. We've been working with local pe people, we've been training them on how to identify these beetles, where, what good habitat looks like, and encouraging them to go out and try and find them all. And we have doubled the known number of populations in the Cotswolds, which now means we can work with the newly discovered sites and landowners to say, you've got this incredibly special beetle. So I mean, that's another success as well. And to be honest, I could probably go on for another half a dozen, dozen, 20 uh, such examples. That's fantastic. That's good. I mean, it's always encouraging, isn't it, that when you're trying to help these animals out that some of them are doing well. You've talked about these success stories. So how has COVID affected any of the work that you do? Because I do remember covering a news item for the podcast actually about how it was affecting the release of checkered skippers. You couldn't release as many as you would have liked. Because we of couldn't COVID. release any this year. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the checkered skippers that are closest to the original English population in terms of food plants and habitat and flight season uh, are those in Belgium. And the original release that took part in 2018 was with Belgian stock. In 2019, we did a top-up introduction. And then this year was meant to be the third year of bringing checkered skippers across. And, and the reason for that is to, if you spread out your introductions over a number of years, that means if you have one like particularly bad weather year, like unusually bad weather, you spread out the impact of that. And it also means you can build up enough genetic diversity in your population as well. So that was the plan for this year, of course, complete a lockdown. Nobody's traveling between countries, could not do the release of checkered skippers this year. So just as lockdown, like the strict lockdown was coming to an end, people that volunteer on that project on their kind of daily walks did spot that checkered skippers had emerged this year so we can 
we, we know that that kind of burgeoning population still exists, uh, but we don't have the kind of data on exactly how many, where they were this year. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a blank for us. And the hope would be that we might be able to do that next year. At the moment, who knows exactly? So that's going to be, that's, and, and hopefully we'll be in a position to monitor. I mean, it might be that we have enough butterflies that they are now self-sustaining, but it's, it's, not, it's not what we ideally were hoping to happen in that situation. No, I think a lot of people have probably said that statement, haven't they? The whole yeah. uh, thing that's gone on. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy about Back From The Brink is the amount of invertebrates, plants and herb tiles that you're championing, because typically it's the, it's the fluff and fur that gets most of the attention. Uh, but it's always a struggle to kind of promote something that's not, you know, inverted commas here, conventionally cute. So what was, was that a conscious choice to choose some of the less loved species or is that just how it ended up being? I think it's a bit of both, actually. So um, I, I think those species that are as close to the brink as the things we're working on, I think the, the fur and fluff, as it were, tend to get that focus anyway. They can command enough interest and support that those projects solo can kind of get off the ground whereas when you're talking as you say with, with back from the brink field crickets and lichens and eagles claw moss and things like this things that people don't immediately hear and have a mental image or something that's not cute and cuddly we so back from the brink allows us allows us to kind of wrap them all up together under this umbrella of this is all the rare stuff and i think probably part of our unique selling point is you know come along on the journey with back from the brink and learn about loads of things you've never heard of and life cycles you've never heard of and living in places and doing things that are completely unknown to you because maybe most of the time you hear about fluff and feathers i have to admit there james i was a bit disappointed to not see any fish well yeah um and and that is We've only got one mollusk as well, so you know the the overall balance is, and one damselfly as yeah. So so we are very heavy on beetles, moss, and lichens, and that's largely because of our ancients of the future project. Which so you've got all those wonderful species kind of living in that ancient tree habitat, and I think probably at the beginning we were talking about where is it you decide to put your effort, and I th- I think part of it was the um those people that had the the expertise and it's like actually who does fish really i mean the partnership that i explained to you where are the fish yeah not many of them do i mean in terms of ngos i mean the rivers trusts are very good i mean they're great ngos you've got the wild trout trust salmon and trout conservation you've got i mean the environment environment agency aren't an ngo but they obviously work with fish so they are out there so you know it's good i mean we've got species like vendace which are which are teetering on the edge and they're a rare glacial fish which are looking like they might be gone in the next 10 years if we don't do much to help them burbot are technically extinct we can't prove 100 percent that they are but we're, we're pretty sure they are but there are rumblings about bringing them back so i mean they'd be a fantastic one for for back to the brink so yeah there are some fish you could uh you could get on there so i'll put you to task on that get, get some fish please <laughs> um, champion fish yeah yeah I, I i'm happy to help where i can i you know i think there's some very rare fish that could do with a little bit of help so yeah definitely get on that are there any species then that are no longer in the uk that you would love to bring back is there any kind of uh, i know rewilding is the hot topic at the minute but i know that your your focus is on species that are already here that need help but if there was one species that you're like we'd love to see that back in the uk is there one that you would uh, that you'd like to see? Well, personally, 
and this is this is personal, but it also kind yes. of falls kind of in yeah. that back from the brink here, um, area of being a little bit obscure. Um, are you familiar with a moth called the spotted sulphur? I'm not. My moth knowledge is is, is uh, quite frankly shit. So, so <laughs> if you can if you can enlighten me, no. Oh, is it? Hang on a minute. No, is this the industrial revolution moth? The one that? Uh, no, uh, no, no, it's okay. not. No, okay. no, unfortunately. Um, Sorry, the, what I was referring to was that there's a moth that evolved or, or adapted to get darker, wasn't there, during the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, that's and the that's the that's the peppered moth. Uh, that's that's it. Chilaria. That, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I'll let you continue. That's fine. So the the spotted sulphur is um, it's a macro moth. So what moth people class as being one of the larger moths, but it's also one of the smaller of the macro moths. So it's kind of middle ground size thing, but it is stunning. It is. Um, it's it's either yellow with black stripes or black with yellow stripes. It's it's kind of fifty fifty black and yellow stripes spots. What it was absolutely? What, what was the name again? Sorry, James. I'll Spotted just give it. sulphur. Spotted. I'm going to give a quick Google one. Yeah, yeah. You, and you've got to you, you've got to get your eyes on this. Okay, so you uh, regale me with it again. Sorry, I'm just getting there. Oh wow, yeah, that's very uh, black. Yeah, black and yellow stripes all over it. It looks. Um, yeah, quite striking. So yeah, Google, yeah, Google yeah. that. <laughs> it's that like the colour of um, like a warning sign or something, you know, yellow and yeah. black. Yeah. And um, this was a species that was found uh, in the Breckland area of East Anglia. Um, so one of the places that actually Back from the Brink is working. And um, it um, fed on... Oh, I believe um, field bindweed, which is not a particularly rare uh, plant species, but presumably the fact that it was only found um, in East Anglia meant there was probably some climate related um, influence on it as well, because Breckland is because of the kind of chalky sandy soils is, is particularly warm in summer and particularly cold in winter. Um, but it, but also the Breck's habitats have, has been, you know, the amount of Breck heath and the, the, the traditional habitats of that area have been built on, eroded, planted up with conifers, etc. So partly it could be habitat loss as well. And it dwindled to extinction by the 1950s, I think. So and not, not that long ago, really. Not really, no, yeah. no. Um, and yeah, f for me, that's that's the one that really stands out to me is I would love to see that bath back. I mean, there's so much positive work going on in the Bre in Breckland, um, and it's just such a stunning moth that um, I think it'd be worth it. Is it one of those things where I mean, it, it could find its own way back if it got blown over, or is it something that we would need to give it a lending hand? I think it, it's an interesting one because it's there have been I think scattered migrant records so I suppose there's always the possibility you could have some boom year they blow in and if the, the habitat is is correct they will you know they will they will recolonize but there's also a part of me that thinks with the way that moth populations are behaving anyway so are you familiar with the Clifton nonpareil the, the blue underwing I'm, uh, no, I'm really showcasing oh. my, my poor knowledge here. No, I'm not. Yes, so so it's, it's a moth, and it's, it's about the size of the palm of your hand. Lovely big moth. Oh, wow. Grey, and it opens its wings. It's got blue on the underside. It's absolutely amazing. This is when a I UK a kid, species. The UK, well, is it? That's, well, that's where it gets a little bit. So um, <laughs> okay. it's in the moth books. Okay. And it was, a, it was the one when I was a kid. It was like, that's the moth I want to see. But it was extinct. Uh, it had been around in the Victorian era, 
people had caught them, there are pinned specimens, there'd been hundreds of them, but it was gone. And then in the last sort of 20 years or so, more and more of them started turning up on the south coast. You know, people would catch a Clifton and you'd go, wow, that's amazing, it's fantastic. And then over the last two or three years, they've been turning up all over the country and it's clear that they are now back and they are now breeding. Nobody has done this. This is just, I don't know, they're either doing well in Europe, habitat is better in Britain. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but they are now back and here. And I caught one in my garden in Bedfordshire this year. And this is a moth that, you know, 15 years ago, you'd have said, where can I go see a Clifton? And like, well, not in Britain, but it's come back by itself. And so with something like the spotted sulphur, it does make you wonder if, you build, you know, if you build it, will they come? If, if, if things are in decent condition, maybe they will make it back here themselves. Well, let's hope. I'm going to, I have actually invested in a moth trap this year and I am trying to get into mothing. And uh, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? You know, I've got enough weird hobbies that I, I enjoy doing. <laughs> yeah. Mothing, I did have a go in my mum's garden next to some Budley and we, we did get some, nothing particularly rare, but some big macro moths. And I was like... I could do this. So I've just moved house myself. Well, I say just been here a few months now. Next year, uh, I'm going to have a go in the garden in the summer and see uh, see what we can turn up. Well, I'm going to end on this last question anyway, uh, James. So we've we've mentioned all these smaller species, and I can tell that you're incredibly passionate about them. But how do you engage the public with the little whirlpool ramshorn snail or or a field cricket? How do you get them to care about these these little invertebrates? I think the most important thing is you can't just say to somebody there is the little whirlpool rams on snail and you should care about it. People are visual. And so one of the things that we've done through Back from the Brink is work with photographers and commissioned photographers to go out and take what, what is, um, and, and this, is, this isn't me exaggerating, the best ever photography of these species ever taken. So Little Whirlpool Rams on Snail, Field Cricket, the Narrow-Headed Ant, the Barbary Carpet Moth. You know, we've commissioned people to go out and take beautiful, inspiring photographs of these species. And then you can put these on your website, you can put these on your mat materials, you know, you can talk about it on social media and people can actually go, I can see the thing you're talking about and you and and the the photographer the artist that's taken this picture has made it look beautiful beautiful and fascinating and then coupled with that it's 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 how do you try and build an emotional connection with these species because people you know you can say to somebody this is rare this is endangered etc etc but really people are emotive and we've been trying to do that in different ways so one thing Back from the Brink has done, which is unusual, is we've worked with um, lots of artists who have gone and worked with local communities and they have done sculpture and they've made lanterns and they've um, done painting and sketching or, or actually using um, natural dyes and materials. And that has simultaneously brought in a different audience than normally, you know, if you normally said, who wants to come and learn about beetles, you're going to get a very specific you know, audience going to do it. You go and do an arts thing that happens to be about arable plants or bees or, or something like that. Then it's a different way of bringing people in. And, and as they're producing their artworks, you're telling them about, well, this species used to be common and widespread and it's reduced in this way. And these are the reasons why, and this is what we can do. And um, that has been really interesting because we have had people that have come to our art events to, to, to 
you know, take part in a, in a free art event and have co come away a volunteer that then wants to go, I don't know, plant Barbary bushes for the Barbary carpet moth or, or help clear scrub on the uh, coast in Sefton for sand lizards and natterjack toads. So those are the kind of the main things. You've got to show people species and you've got to, we've got to, all of conservation has to learn how to reach out to different people and engage with the people we don't normally talk to because we, because all the people that care already care and it's not enough we've got to reach the people that could care but don't care yet yeah there's no point preaching to the converted is there exactly so i think that's you know fantastic and i think that back you know and i definitely encourage people to check out back from the brink the, the website's phenomenal and i definitely agree the photography that you've invested in and it's one of the, i mean i'm i'm a bit biased because i'm a photographer myself but the amount of ngos that have substandard or quite frankly crap photography it doesn't enthuse people and if you've got these really amazing images whether it is a a beetle that lays its egg in an ant's nest or or some moth that no one's heard of if you've got an amazing image or bit of footage of that people are going to be like wow that's incredible and it's going to catch their attention and hopefully make them care so i think you're doing it the the right way and in a fantastic way so carry on doing it james thank you very much <laughs> well look it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, and i will catch you at some point i'm sure absolutely yeah you'll have to come out and visit a project sometime i would love to i would absolutely love to so look, take care yep you too well i think it's great to see a glimmer of hope in conservation particularly with what a shit year it's been but seeing species that would otherwise have gone extinct and bringing them back to healthy and acceptable numbers can only be a good thing surely so i think that's absolutely fantastic and i can't help but mirror what James was saying about decent photography. So often different uh, charities and groups use to shite photography. That's not me being an uppity photographer, just, just rubbish photos because they can get them for free or get them cheap. And it makes such a difference to your organisation if you use high quality images. I know that I, I'm, you know, the fox in the hencoop because I'm a photographer and obviously I'm going to say that, but it just looks so much better. I mean, a great example is look on the Instagram feed of different charities, and if they're using crappy photography, you're not interested. But if they're using engaging and interesting photos from different photographers of a high quality, it draws you in and it makes you care, even if you didn't care about that particular species. So power to Back From The Brink. I think that's absolutely fantastic what they are doing. Next week, I'm joined by Charlie Hamilton James, who is a wildlife presenter. He's a cameraman. He's an award-winning photographer. It was a, a great chat. He's very open about what's happened in his past, and you'll have to listen to see what I mean by that. But he was an absolute hoot to have on the podcast, and uh, you'll you'll enjoy it, I think. I enjoyed doing it. So this has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you next time. Cheers.